Bonjour, nos amis ivrognes de la mythologie. Je suis Kate. Et je suis l'autre Jane. Et nous sommes les filles les ivrognes de la mythologie. Ivrognes de la mythologie. <laughs> I just want to make it clear this was other Jen's idea to do the intro in French. And now that I think of it, I could probably make les fils ivrognes de la mythologie work a little better if I did les fils inébriés. But okay. I don't know. It's meh. Whatever. <laughs> Not doing that shit again. We probably are. Anytime we do a oh. French episode. But yeah. So, like I said earlier, in honor of your upcoming amazing trip, because I'm not jealous. Nope. Um, all of the Patreon exclusive content between now and the middle of May is going to deal somehow with something French. <laughs> because if I can make Greek Norsevember work, I can right. totally make French fry days work. <laughs> yes. And that means today we're going to talk about snails. Wait. Ugh. Snails. 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 Mm, okay. When I was growing up, uh, we had a French woman for a neighbor, and her name was Gigi. Gigi. Okay. Gigi. And her uh, daughter's name was Regine, which means queen, which is so pretty. Um But Gigi had like these fabulous little cocktail parties and, you know, being fenceless neighbors, we'd just wander over and my mom would speak French with her and it was all very, you know, fun. And one of the things that Gigi would serve were snails. Escargot. Okay. So I remember very vividly at the age of four, like digging into a plate of escargot and my mom comes over and she's like, you know, those are snails. And I'm like, I, they're good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I'm pretty cool. Like I've eaten some strange things over in France. So yeah. I, I've eaten snails once. Mm -hmm. I had a guy that I'm not even sure if it really was a date or not. Oh, one of those. Yeah. I just somebody I had met, we were talking, we chatted, we an met. ambiguous zone get together. <laughs> yeah, but it was just the two of us and there were I could never get a good vibe if this was a date and we like met up like maybe twice after mm -hmm. the the first initial time that we you know, yeah. encountered each other and met. Um, and I s was never clear if they were dates or not. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I was never clear. It, he never picked me up. It was, we met out. Mm -hmm. and it, it's, you know, it's like, oh, let's meet me here. And I'm like, okay. You weren't sure if you were getting Winnebalded. <laughs> <laughs> and actually that's going to be a reference. You'll have to listen to the episode next week for. Right. 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 Cause we just finished um, recording that one, but Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Winnebalded. So one of the, one of the times we met up for dinner at a restaurant, he ordered snails. Uh-huh. He ordered escargot. And yeah. I remember, I, I don't know enough about, serving escargot which i know you're like but you went to culinary school yeah okay um it was like in a ramekin with and it was served cooked hot mm -hmm. it was there was like butter i remember mm -hmm. some some greenery like probably parsley perhaps mm -hmm. who knows what else in there i have no memory of whether i liked it or not interesting Okay. Because I think I was so obsessed. Is this a date or not? <laughs> you know, I think you were probably focused on the correct thing in that moment. So yeah. I'm going to take you through the history of edible snails. Oh, 
Okay. And you can make a decision whether it's going to be on your menu when you go to France. (laughs) So I'm game. Yeah. But we'll see. Okay. All right. So here we go. I know it's it it's snails. It's about snails. Yeah. But honestly, with enough butter, garlic, and salt, you can make practically anything edible. Yeah. And that includes yeah. snails. Yes. <laughs> well, I now have the whole lactose issue, so the butter's gotta be clarified. But other than uh, that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There is that. Um yeah. but it still probably would work. So anyway, yeah. um escargot sounds like the Frenchiest French word ever. Yeah. But this particular spelling, E-S-C-A-R-G-O-T, was only used in this modern form for the first time in 1892. Whoa. The older French word was escargol. And that dates back to the 1500s, and it was just more commonly used then. But even escargol goes even further back to Latin roots, fuck the Romans, (laughs) coculium. And eventually, we find reference to the ancient Greek word conchilion. Oh. Okay, and so, so that word, what you have written in the notes here, I see that word, that makes me think of a conch shell. And you're not wrong. Yeah. Because we're going to get there. Oh, <laughs> I want so a gold star. <laughs> you you do, you, you get two gold stars. And guess what? Listener Claire, our Patreon listener Claire, she uh-huh. gave me a roll of gold stars <gasps> Okay, so you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have, we're going to have to go and design that sticker notebook. Yes. So people can like start collecting their stickers and you're going to like have to put start collecting stars gold stickers and writing down the date you <laughs> earned each goddamn star. <laughs> so, yes. yeah. So this very epitome of weird French cooking actually has its roots in ancient Greece. Yeah. Okay. I told you I could make the connection. (laughs) (laughs) And most likely, uh, it has an even earlier point in human evolution um, because edible snail shells have been found in some of the oldest prehistoric settlements and caves all all over the world. Shells, not the the snail, but the shell? The shells. Interesting. And they can tell because like you'd find a pile of shelves, shells next to a pile of bones, next to a pile of carbon, which was, you know, right. the fire. So, you know, there are certain ways they look at, you know, waste distribution from food right. Right. around a campsite to, you know, uh, uh, I would need to study a lot more archaeology to explain how that works, but I know that's how it does, how they do it. So before you go running off to look for your cocktail hors d'oeuvre in the backyard, and by the oh way- Oh my God, how did I never realize that's a French word? Yeah, hors d'oeuvre. Or, or term, French term. Yep. Uh, it means outside the main work. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. So hors means- Outside. Around or outside. Or around. Okay. The uh, apostrophe is de. Of. And right. oeuvre means a work, like a work of art. Oh, or. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. You know, a work, uh, a project, a work, a creation. Oh, wow. So it's outside the main work. The Louvre. Is that how it's spelled? No. The the L O U V R E. Oh, damn. I was close. Excellent elision <laughs> of phonemes, but no. Because that would have if it I did, I can't remember if there is an apostrophe. Nope. It could be, you know, like l'hotel. It could have been love uh the Project no. the artwork. Yes, come but, on, work with uh, me. I see where you're going, but yeah, but it's spelled it, different. The the, the, the O E 
it would be OU if it was going to work that way. So anyway. Okay, fine. Before <laughs> you go hunting in your backyard, like a weekend warrior, um, let's talk about which snails you can eat and which ones would be the last thing that you eat. Oh, okay. So most common land snails, as they are called, aren't poisonous. They However, are not poisonous. They okay. are not. Got However, it. a lot of species are too small to be worth the effort. Right. And so what you will see is most of the snail species that are used for food, their shell is about the size of a penny or a two cent euro piece, which is the size of a penny. Okay. Um, and the most common edible land snail today is the Helix pomatia or the red spiral snail. Okay. There's also the little gray or petit gris. Mm, okay. Cornu asperza and one other whatever, fuck the Roman name, Latin, whatever that's consumed. So, okay. Yeah. You can go ahead and enjoy the fuck out of those snails. However, if you are walking along the water's edge and get the bright idea to pick up a snail off a rock, don't fucking do it. Oh, why? Because water snails will fucking kill you. (gasps) Oh. I mean, they're pretty, but you won't get further than, wow, it's so pretty, before you're dead. Oh, my God. For real. For real. Like touching? Just you wait, girlfriend. So I've included a pretty picture of uh, some of the most toxic creatures on the fucking planet. Wait, is it just snails? These are all. I see like the very top. I see red and I'm like, I'm afraid to scroll. Just scroll. These are the pretty shells that you'd be like, oh my God, that's so pretty. I totally scored, you know, picking (gasps) it off. off Those are gorgeous. And I know I picked some of those up in like North Carolina on the beach. Right. I swear I've seen some of these. Yeah. Yeah. They tend to live in warmer waters. Okay. So these are the shells of the marine cone snail. It is one of the most poisonous creatures on the planet. Like, oh sit my down, God. Sit down, scorpions, move over cobras. And because when Mother Nature sets out to fuck you over, she likes to do a really thorough job. So she created more than 600 species of toxic cone snail. Holy shit. But you're never going in the ocean again. <laughs> I mean, I was already squeamish, but yeah. Oh my God. So a live cone snail has something called a radula, which is a needle-like tongue, which is what they use to inject venom. Oh, my God. So think of it, it it's literally like the flexible needle tip of an IV. Ugh. And for a creature without a spine, the it somehow has the muscular strength to put the uh, force of attack behind it so hard that it can penetrate gloves and wetsuits. So nobody <gasps> is fucking safe. Holy shit. And if that's not horrifying enough, these asshole snails are all about the overkill. When they are hunting worms and fish, uh, they eat. They have been known to eat fish twice their size. And I mean, yeah, like big enough that they can't even drag that fucker back into the shell. So some snails will emit a mating pheromone that tricks sea worms into thinking they're about to get laid and start crawling toward their predator. Mm. I'm about to get fucked. Yes, you are, son. Yes, you are. (laughs) (laughs) Other snails will produce goddamn insulin that they spray into the water that leaves the fish completely disoriented and drugged out, unable to swim away. Oh, my God. But aware enough to know that they're in hor- horrible pain and dying. Yeah. Oh like it, Mother Nature didn't even give these creatures, like, you know, the knockout punch. Like, you're alive and aware and awake. Wow. Yeah. So then, depending on the species, the snail will either opt for the solitary tase and tether technique. Uh, <laughs> or a bunch of them will gang up on larger prey. Yeah, you could be surrounded wow. by a group of fucking murder snails. Oh my god. 
Move over, murder hornets. <laughs> yeah. There's a new whatever this is in town. Oh, my God. So, so okay. unlike bees who die once they sting you, which was definitely a design fail on the part of nature, these assholes have up to 20 needle tongues in various stages of growth at any given point. Oh, my God. You're holy shit. So if you scroll down, you'll see. I don't want to scroll. Scroll what down. Is this fucker's face? Yeah. Oh my god! Look at his eyeball. He's like, come at me, come, come at on. me, Brit. Yeah, oh, come at me, bra. Oh and that's god. the radula. Oh yeah. my god! <clears throat> so the pretty textile cone snail. Uh, which, you know, is a fairly nice shell, but it, and fairly common. It's about four inches in length. Okay. Has enough venom in its body at any given time to kill up to 700 people in one go. Holy shit. Oh mm-hmm. my God. Less than two milligrams of venom will kill a healthy 150-pound adult. And for our European metric friends... Oh, 70 kilogram adult. Okay. And I I actually searched, you know, (laughs) size visualization of two milligrams of whatever. And so I I know what two milligrams looks like from culinary. Right. So, but this is like two milligrams of, I found a picture of a little bit of powder (laughs) next to a penny. (laughs) Uh, Just roll with it. It, It's minuscule. So- Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's wow. got enough in that little slimy body to kill 700 people. Oh, so, my God. How fast can cone snail poison or conotoxin kill you? Well, the uh, these snails are called cigarette snails because uh, not because of their shape, but because if you get stung and don't get treatment, you have just enough time to f- smoke a final cigarette before you die. Oh, my God. But even if you get a small sting from a tiny cone snail, like one that doesn't can probably only kill 350 people at a go, you know, you might not even feel anything for days. Like it could kill you like that, or it could take hours or days for symptoms to manifest. Holy shit. Seven minutes to seven days. Oh, my God. Now, I'm never going near the water again. <laughs> if you're lucky, you'll just get blinding nausea, excruci- excruciating localized pain, numbness, nerve damage, swelling, and vomiting. Mm. The not so lucky, loss of vision, paralysis, respiratory failure, and death. <laughs> Should you find yourself among this group, the uh, next bit of info will save your life. First, Run screaming to a first aid station and demand that they give you a bucket of really, really hot water because you got to soak the area of the sting in hot in water that's as hot as you can handle. Also, tie a somewhat loose tourniquet that still allows for some blood flow because otherwise you're like, hey, let's get some blood clots going. But this will also slow the spread of venom through the body. Uh, try to move as little as possible after you've run <laughs> screaming to the uh, to the yeah. Uh, first aid station. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, circulation. And demand to be carried on a palanquin or in the arms of a nice, strong, handsome lifeguard to a nearby hospital. <laughs> a, the fuck sap, because you will probably need artificial resp- respiration to keep you alive while doctors try to figure out what the fuck to do. Because guess what? There is no anti-venom for conotoxin. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What? Oh, my God. How, yeah. Do people saving it for the questions? People right. study this shit. <laughs> Carry so, on. Aside from being the angriest dinner ever, <laughs> another good reason not to fuck with cone snails is that they are carnivorous. Uh, so okay. There's wow. a reason. We as humans don't eat carnivores. And so, you know, it's probably a good idea not to eat these carnivorous slime balls. Um, although now that I think of it, 
chickens and other fowl eat insects, but do insects count as meat? Like what is going on? My brain. Um, uh, okay. But yeah. That's, did did yeah. they talk to you about carnivore meat versus herbivore meat in cooking school? Not that I recall. Um, we did talk about what types of uh, feed some animals are given. Mm-hmm. And for example, a cow that is grazing in the pasture and eating natural grass on its own mm-hmm. and just living its best life, you know, tr- frolicking through the daisies. The meat from that cow is mm-hmm. going to taste different from its identical twin mm-hmm. that is raised in a on a on like grain feed that's uh it, depending on the diet of what the cow eats the meat mm-hmm. is going to taste different and i i can tell a difference when i buy grass fed beef products mm-hmm. that it's the flavor is just more it's mm-hmm. more flavorful um so as far as talking about why we don't eat animals that eat meat i'm 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 ra- I, this obviously never came up because i'm sitting here racking my brain going mm-hmm. wait is that true is that accurate really wait let, what about no oh my gosh yeah she's right holy yeah. cow um, <laughs> literally <laughs> I, yeah, but um <laughs> um i i know that there are also some really uh, frowned upon there's a term Mm -hmm. frowned upon practices where some animals are fed a feed mixture that Mm -hmm. will have meat from other animals in it yeah that's uh yeah so i'm not going to go too deep into it but it is an interesting question because um so carnivores tend to have higher levels of cholesterol in their meat and their bloodstream. So the meat's going to uh, have a very different effect on your body than the leaner meats of herbivores. Um, Also carnivores are more likely to have parasites. So you increase your risk of consuming parasites. And then also there's something about the energy conversion and how we metabolize the meat of carnivores versus the meat of herbivores. And we don't get everything that we need from carnivores or not enough of it. So, you know, plus carnivores require, you know, it's unsustainable to, um, you know, to, not grow them, but <laughs> I can't think of the word, right. but to grow them for, um, you know, livestock purposes. Okay. I thought of a carnivore shark, or is it not in the same category because it's a water? I think thing. we're talking mammalian okay. carnivores because yeah, I Got mean, it. we okay. eat fish that eat other fish. Uh, this again goes to chickens eat insects. Like, Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I've had a shark snake. Uh, shark snake. Oh, my God. <laughs> shark steak. Yep. Once. Or, uh, I tasted somebody else's shark steak. Um, mm-hmm. it, I was like, oh, okay. That's interesting. But that, yeah. was, that was really all that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and, you know, hmm. we also don't have... um certain like our human stomachs acid is actually a lot weaker than uh carnivore stomach acid so okay like yeah. it, you know we don't have a strong enough acid to kill a lot of the bar- parasites and bacteria so right. you know there there are actually legitimate scientific reasons why eh, it's not eating uh 
not a good idea to eat uh, carnivores. It's also not a good idea to eat humans because uh, <laughs> there are legit, there are studies about why human meat would be bad for you. <laughs> because there are people out there who do it. It's, you know, I'm a wow. writer. I, I have questions and sometimes you need answers. And I'm glad that I was able to get an answer off the internet without actually having to like, right. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, while I was reading this about the cone snails, I also just came across something called the stonefish. Okay. Which is the world's most poisonous fish. Wow. But it also, just for good measure, has two razor sharp bones under its eye sockets that can it can fucking flick out like a goddamn switchblade. <laughs> like you just did to your pop filter. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes. And Mother Nature, eat a Snickers or something. Right? Oh my God. So now, because humans are fucking idiots and seem determined to create a zombie apocalypse, scientists are all like, wow, we could use conotoxin in medicines. What? Yeah, these are the same bright minds that are like, well, let's take some toxic tree frogs and weird other weird killer shit from the Amazon and see if it'll make Viagra. Oh, my God. So technically, it's not a terrible idea because okay. the yeah. nerve receptor blockage effect, which is what pain is, mm -hmm. um, the nerve blockage effect is a thousand times stronger than morphine with none of the addictive properties. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So this is why it's actually not a terrible concept to noodle. Yeah. Just, I'm going to need to see like a couple decades worth of double-blind peer review <laughs> before I let it near me. Right, right, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's bad enough that Edible snails are a $300 million industry just in the U.S. Wow. And May 24th is National Escargot Day. Oh, wow. Okay. I won't be in France at that point, but. I know. Yeah. But I'm just pointing out yeah. that it is the month of snails. So. <laughs> This is why we leave shellfish to the fucking experts and why ocean when there are swim-up bars and pools. Right. So, <laughs> back to our regularly scheduled French culinary history. Okay. Which really takes us back to the Romans because full fucking circle fuck the Romans. <laughs> there was a dude named Fulvius Lipinus. Okay. I, I want to call him Fulvius Lipid and it, you got to admit, his name sounds like a gynecological term getting smashed together with hyperlipidemia and a um, cholesterol yeah. medication. <laughs> yes, yes. And way back when, he owned about 25 acres out in the countryside somewhere around Rome. Okay. We mostly know about him because Pliny the Elder, and if you cast your mind back to the Pompeii episode, yeah. Pliny the Elder was the guy who was too gluttonous to actually uh, get his ass up out of the party couch right. and uh, leave Pompeii and right. died there instead. He wrote about Fulvius in his famous book, Natural History. Fulvius right. was really, really into gamekeeping. I don't think he was the first person, but he was the first person to make a lot of noise about it and have it recorded. I also see him as kind of groundskeeper Willie, even though it, it, Scottish, Latin, whatever. But, <laughs> you know, he really came up with a lot of, he wrote down and recorded a lot of theories about game reserves and breeding and hunting. And he was very open-minded about it too. He didn't just uh, limit himself to quadrupeds. He also was like, yeah, we can do quadrupods. <laughs> Oh he goodness. set up a sort of scientific snail farm technique. Oh. And this, my friends, is what history truly remembers him for, literally. Okay. Which just goes to show the wicked are eventually punished by time. <laughs> <laughs> my ancestor is famous. What for? Breeding, Breeding snails. snails. <laughs> <laughs> So oh. have faith in history, even if justice isn't around the corner right now. <laughs> so 
I'm going to quote directly from Wikipedia for clarity's sake when describing his cochlearia or snail farm. Because oh, that it actually also is- reminds me of a p- part in the ear. The cochlear, because it's yeah. shaped like a shell. Yeah. Okay. A spiral shell. I want another Not a cone snail. Sticker. I want another gold sticker. Okay. A gold star. <laughs> two, two gold stars so far. So the cochlear, cochlearia were parks surrounded with a water channel to prevent the escape of the snails parked in there. These parks were equipped with an irrigation system that was the predecessor of the current agricultural sprinkler system. Water pipes with a rose-shaped head were placed against a surface in such fashion that the water burst into a fine mist and thus provided the snails with the necessary moisture. So yeah, the ancient Romans had a fucking sprinkler system for their I'm snails. Loving, oh, I'm loving this. I'm like, dude, this rocks. <laughs> Lipinus had a separate park for each snail species, each of which was marketed for specific qualities. For example, he had small white snails from uh, nearby Riate, large snails from Illyricum, medium-sized snails from Africa, and particularly large snails also from Af- Africa, the so-called... Uh, solitane, which were very prolific. <laughs> Dude's a ravenclaw. So, yeah. Now, as anyone who has studied the Romans knows, there isn't a single Roman who can't help but butt in with his opinion on recipes and the best way to prepare certain dishes. Like, they, there mm-hmm. are literally, like, reams and reams of papyri that they found where it's like, well, I, you know, it's debates about how to prepare a fish. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Fulvius was no different. Snails literally are what they eat. So Fulvius started them off right by feeding them his own personal formula based on boiled wine, corn flour, and herbs. Interesting. Yeah. So when he was ready to start cooking the snails, he first put them in a jar with air holes in the lid. And in the jar, he put milk, salt, and bread. And he had to change out the milk every day so it didn't go bad and end up killing the snails. Right. He did this until the snails were literally too large to fit back in their shells. (gasps) And then he either grilled them. So they come out of the shell and... They feed and feed and feed and keep feeding. Oh, It's like the darker side of foie gras. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then he either grilled them over a fire or fried them in a pan, serving them with herbs and sauces. Okay. So Fulvius became so freaking successful with this snail thing, he had to start importing snails to meet the market demand just in Rome itself. He even set up a ferry service to deliver the slimy little beasts regularly from farms in Sardinia, Sicily, Capri, and the Spanish and North African coasts. Wow. So Quite the entrepreneur. It literally, another yeah. one of his little snail treats that he served visitors was a leaf of lettuce, three snails, two eggs, spelt mixed with honey and snow. 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 Where's he getting snow? I don't know. I, but all I can see is a snail, a lettuce taco with snails inside. <laughs> But then I found another snail recipe as reproduced and adapted from Marcus Apicius. Okay. Uh, You got me? I I think, yeah. Marcus. Lothragen. (laughs) Well, actually, so he was a first century Roman gourmand and they collected his recipes into a fifth century uh, CE cookbook. Wow. Yeah. There's literally a Roman cookbook from the fifth century CE. Very and cool. I found um, <clears throat> this following recipe from that book on this guy's blog and channel called Pass the Flamingo. It's oh fabulous. Pass yeah, the Flamingo. <laughs> Pass the Flamingo. He talks about all kinds of like weird food from all over the world and history. Wow. Okay. So. Uh, about 12 land snails, two tablespoons of olive oil, two tablespoons of fish sauce, one and a half teaspoons of ground black pepper, two 
two teaspoons ground cumin, crusty whole wheat bread, and butter lettuce. Wow. So you remove the snails from the can, rinse them in cold water, pat them dry, heat the olive oil uh, over medium heat, and add the snails and stir for two to three minutes. (laughs) Add the fish sauce, pepper, cumin, and uh, pepper and cumin. Cook for a little longer. Total time should be seven to ten minutes, not too long. Otherwise, snails will get rubbery, and I'm out of here. (laughs) Serve hot with sliced bread and lettuce. He wow. gave it IX out of X. Oh my God. <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> so, he wrote Roman numerals to give yeah. it nine out of 10. Oh my God. I love that. <laughs> so, snails have ever since made on and off appearances in cookbooks throughout the Mediterranean and everywhere Roman occupation reached. Looking at you, Germany and Britain, often they were the last line of defense against starvation. Because okay. snails are surprisingly high in protein and super low in fat. Oh. Why is it that everything that is good for you is a fucking snail? Yeah. <laughs> so just like broccoli yeah. rabe was the food of peasants because they can't afford to waste shit until some chef got bored desperate, ran out of lettuce, snails right. remained an under-the-radar food item until 1814 when a young chef by the name of Marie-Antoine Carême, Carême. <laughs> turned to snails to save the relationship between France and Russia. Yep. And this was two years after Napoleon tried marching to Moscow in the winter. Didn't go well for Napoleon, but it also didn't exactly endear the French to the Russians. Right. So there was this bigwig French diplomat, at the time, who was the most slithery Slytherin that ever slithered. His name was Talleyrand, and Mm -hmm. he was the foreign minister under the revolution, Napoleon, and the brief restoration of Louis XVIII. He flipped sides faster than a creperie. And as we should all know by now in life, the best diplomacy is always accomplished with really good food and even better booze. Oh, yes. To that end... Talleyrand hired Karem, and interestingly enough, uh, Karem, too, managed to survive and flourish through the same chaotic times. He was born in utter poverty in the slums of Paris, and the slums of Paris back then were fucking slums. Yes. Horrible. Um, But he managed to get a series of apprenticeships under a series of bakers and pastry chefs. One of the pâtisseurs, Bailly, was actually in a rather posh neighborhood. He was also really impressed with young Karem and suggested he learn to read and write. So with whatever time off he had, Karem would go to the Bibliothèque Nationale and read books on anything from art to architecture to history. He then unleashed his imagination on poor unsuspecting pastry and marzipan. Yes, he did. (laughs) His cakes would replicate palaces, pagodas, or ancient Greek fucking ruins. Yep. Yep. And I have some pictures yep. from the illustration plates of his book. Yes. yes. Yeah. He was, um, stop me if I'm getting ahead of you, but Karem is the father of grand cuisine. Uh, basically, he was the the one who really is credited with mm-hmm. going overboard, over yeah. the top with presentation and the fanfare. He also contribute a lot of stuff with like uh you you mentioned this yesterday when we were talking the the, the uniform sauces. he he started the mother sauces and then uh i've just blanked out the name Escoffier. of the other guy yes escoffier came behind and kind of cleaned it up a little bit yeah <laughs> escoffier had to ravenclaw karem's chaos <laughs> karem was just like I'm going to let it fly. <laughs> yes. 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 And there isn't yeah. anything that doesn't need more marzipan. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. More is better. Bigger is better. That's more Karem. Is more. Yeah. yeah. That's Karem's whole, you know, reputation. And to look at some of the, the whatever survived, you know, pictures or as you have here, illustrations, it's just mm-hmm. mind blowing. It's like, Oh my God. 
How long would that fucking take? Like Exactly. Who has time for that? Right. Who who had the time to do all of that? Um, I mean, if you think of like the grandest and most intricately detailed wedding cake Mm -hmm. for us in the United States, that's probably the one culinary thing that has the most artwork to it and presentation uh, on a grand scale. Yeah. He was doing that with dinner and it was just like, wow. Okay, dude chill. <laughs> that's yeah. where es- Escoffier came in and is like, okay, boy, take yeah. Prozac. We, we don't need two soup courses. <laughs> right. <laughs> take a chill yeah. pill. <laughs> yeah. Rain it in. Here, here's some ADHD meds. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's let's kind of clean, make this a little more uh, functional, <laughs> a little yeah. more accessible. There's a better word. There so. you go. So yeah. We- yeah, so, we we did a little quick pause real quick and I went and grabbed it's my book. Magic. <laughs> because I just couldn't resist going and grabbing the book and yeah, it's so the dates for uh Antonin Karem are I'm saying that with a Spanish accent, aren't I? You were laughing it's at me. It's Marie earlier. Antoine Karem. Um Marie <laughs> Antoine. They yep. but they also have in parentheses Antonin yeah, I mean, that's Karim. more like a little nickname, but he was li- yeah. literally given the male version of Marie Antoinette's name. Right, right. And so he was... kind of awkward during the revolution, but whatever. <laughs> he was, uh, the dates next to his name are 1783 to 1833. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so he was an author and he wrote and illustrated a lot of still considered important texts in the yep. culinary arts. Um, and he was known as the cook of Kings and the King of cooks. So he, he was the master of French grand cuisine and just, yeah. Yep. But you know, I'm like, God bless us. Auguste Escoffier <laughs> coming behind and like trying to make sense. He, Escoffier probably had a spreadsheet. <laughs> Either that or some pottery. <laughs> Karem had nothing. Karem was like, had a, whatever. Had a, he had a wall of post-it notes. <laughs> yeah, Karem would be like the serial killer string. <laughs> and Escoffier comes in and puts it all into a spreadsheet. And yeah, it's like, okay, yeah. dude. <laughs> let's let's so, easier. Yeah. So we have Talleyrand. And Karem in this uh, partnership that kind of weirdly sounds like you and me. (laughs) (laughs) Which one of us is which? I don't know. Because I'm kind of like, let it fly. And you're like, "Uh, that we need a, we need a thing here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So anyway, um, what was happening at the time in 1814 was Tsar Alexander I of Russia was visiting France at the invitation of the French, who were trying to do a big old, uh, yeah, sorry about trying to invade, but that was last government, so we cool now, kind of diplomatic effort. Yeah, because just two years yeah. earlier, Napoleon had been like, Moscow is mine! And right, you know, like right. Moscow is not his. So... The trouble is, uh, Louis the Eighteenth wasn't much more useful at governing and shit than Louis the Sixteenth, who was the one who got his head chopped off. Oh. Uh, yeah, and also his wife was Marie Antoinette, who was what Karam was named for. Awkward. <laughs> so yeah. This Louis proceeded to ignore and piss off Tsar Alexander when Alexander was visiting his chateau, which meant that Talleyrand had to figure out a way to fix things fast because Alexander was then coming to stay with him next. And who knows if another tantrum would spark Russia versus France round two. Wow. Okay. And they say women are too dramatic for diplomacy. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So... Talleyrand was also known as Le Diable Boiteux, or the Lame Devil, 
because oh. he was a devious asshole, but also being very good at being a devious asshole. And two, <laughs> he was lame in one leg since childhood and walked with a limp. Oh. Call it like it is, baby. Okay. And he decided that the best course of action was to stuff Tsar Alexander's face with amazing French food. Ah. Like, but not just the best wine from the cellars and the most extravagant dishes. Talleyrand came up with the idea of giving the Tsar an experience of something he'd never eaten before. Enter Karim. Yes. So... Mm -hmm. Who could he turn to in that moment? It would be the creme de la carême. <laughs> I did it. You knew I was going to find a way to do it. So uh, he was the master and personal chef to Talleyrand. Sort of. Next year, okay. we are totally getting a full JSTOR subscription because oh, it was so hard looking up details of this dinner, even with French Google. Wow. So because, you know, French history is very well documented, but it's all in French. And <laughs> while I read that perfectly, it, right. you know, it just, it makes it hard to find sources because there aren't as many open sources about it. So anyway, got it. there's a story of how Karem got started with Talleyrand, and I'm going to tell you and then let you weigh in on the plausibility of this. Oh, fun. So... Talleyrand wanted to test young Carême before he hired him full-time as the chef for his countryside chateau. And so he asked him to design a year's worth of menus for his chateau in the country, using only local and seasonal food and never repeating the same meal twice. Oh, shit. Wow. I picked up a book at Ikea once that was 365 dinner recipes, but mm -hmm. the work that goes into that, and then you put in using only local and seasonal. Mm -hmm. Oh, and so, the side dishes. Wow. Okay. Well, so Karem's dinner service consisted of two soups, two opening dishes, including one of fish, four additional starters, two roasts, four sweets, and the dessert. Yeah, that sounds like him. I spent 20 minutes free-falling down a rabbit hole of historical state dinner menus. Amazing. But another time. <laughs> yep. But yeah, like when you said Karem was just like a wall, solid wall of post-it notes, I'm like, yep, yep, yep. That, that is what this is. So yeah. while it's true he did work for Karem, Karem uh, bleh, while Karem did work for Talleyrand, I don't know if this particular story is 100% accurate. I'm not putting much stock in that. Because yeah. I, I, I'm not seeing him designing a lot of breakfasts and lunches. Like, they didn't really do lunches, mostly. It was breakfast, then tea, then dinner. Right. But... Uh, you know, I, I can't see him. I, I'm thinking he was like, come up with 365 dinners, you know? Right. Um, yeah. But, and, and even, uh, um, I, I, I'm, I would want more information on the sources of this. Yeah. I, I, I'm calling urban legend. Yeah, see, I want to read, like, the original French sources on this, but I can't fucking get at them because I need a fucking Anyway, <clears throat> so Karem's career really took off when he worked for Talleyrand, and he definitely did work for him, but there is some debate about just how long he did and whether he moved on to kind of become more of a freelancer consulting chef while running his own pastry shop in Paris. So, you know, you know, he was side gigging, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, he's found credited as being, you know, as working for, he was 
chef too. Uh, you you mentioned Tyler Alexander the first. Yep, he was also yep. He worked for Prince Regent of England, who became King George the fourth. Yep, um, as well as Baron de Rothschild. Yep, Did I don't he, know who that is, but uh, he a uh, uh, banker. Oh, okay. I think well, mm, given that time period. Uh, I know that they did early 1800s. Yeah. Uh, 1800s live Googling. (laughs) Uh, He was a British banker and politician. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Um, also champagne. (laughs) Yes. So anyway, um, you know, he could have been working for Talion, uh at in 1814 when Tsar Alexander came over for dinner. Or I found another source that said, I, I actually found two sources that said the glory really goes to a Burgundian man by the name of Anacreon, who was working as the chef for him. Mm, I don't know. Okay. See what you think after this next little bit. Okay. So one of the novelties that Talleyrand's chef proposed for the menu was an hors d'oeuvre dish similar to the Burgundian countryside peasant dish, uh, but not something that regularly graced the tables of any nobility. Les escargots de Bourgogne. (gasps) There's that word escargot again. It's the classic recipe we know now, butter, garlic, salt, parsley. Yep. All things that are very accessible and in good supply to peasants all that over. Recipe that I apparently had when I was on the Is This a Date? <laughs> yeah. So, um, whether it was Carême or Anacreon or Carême consulting with Anacreon, don't believe the last minute legend of. Uh, Talleyrand comes up to chef and is like, oh my God, we've got to fix the relationship with Tsar Alexander the first. So we got to come up with a really creative dinner. And the chef goes back and he's like, oh, there's nothing in the pantry. What am I going to do? Oh gosh, look at those snails over there. It could be kind of fun. Let's cook them and see what happens. That didn't happen. (laughs) It takes several days to purge snails, even Uh... before you want to start to cook them. Remember Fulvius? Right, right. So either they had some advanced warning, or more likely there was always one or two jars of snails in some stage of purging. Oh, see, that makes sense there. Yes. Okay. And, you know, it was a Burgundian recipe, escargot de Bourgogne, and Anacreon was from Burgundy. Okay. You know, I, I don't know. I'm open. I'm, I, I don't have a dog in the fight. Right. Um, Same. Yeah. So, but surprisingly, the snails were a smash hit with the Tsar, who declared them to be marvelous. <laughs> now, uh, just remember, vodka notwithstanding, Russian cuisine involves pickling everything that can be pickled and relying heavily on beets. So, snails, probably a nice <laughs> change of pace. But- right, right, right. The fragile treaty between the two countries was safe. Okay, so here's a possibility. Mm-hmm. What if it was Karem, mm-hmm. and this is how Karem ended up working for Alexander? I, you know, I, I'm open Alexander to that. Alexander could have plucked him away from Talleyrand, whatever Tally his Ron. name is. Talleyrand. Talleyrand. But, yeah. And I could probably find the truth of it if I could get my hands on the actual French <laughs> documents. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, you tell so, me where to go in, in two and a half weeks. What what library I need to go look. I need fucking JSTOR. <laughs> That's what we're saving up for. <laughs> but so anyway, regardless of who cooked the little our little slimy buddies. There is one bit of urban legend that I dearly love from this story. And it's sort of um, the moral of the fable. Le vainqueur de Napoléon a été vaincu par un escargot. The conqueror of Napoleon was conquered 
by a snail. Oh, my God. <laughs> ah, that's hysterical. It's all fucking connected. The fucking end. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. All right. Uh, this is, I told okay. you I loved this particular, like, episode. Yes. Like, I was working on this script, and I'm like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yep. And you were texting me, do you know the name Marie Antoine Karam? I'm like, uh, of course I do. Do I know that name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So there we go. Snails saved history. Yep. Yep. It's, yeah. Wow. So now I feel obligated to eat snails when I go over there. You know, I, I, they're not probably all that expensive and you can probably get them at any bistro just saying like yeah yeah uh, and honestly they're not bad it's like eating a muscle right you know it's not yeah they're not slimy they're buttery <laughs> yeah i've had um, oysters um, yeah i mean if you can eat an oyster you can eat an escargot especially because yeah. it, it's all the Butter, salt, garlic, parsley. Yeah. Hello. I'm just going to have to find out if the sauce is, is it clarified yeah. butter or not? Mm. Mm -hmm. That'll be, yeah. Because then I won't know, am I sick from butter or am I sick from a snail? <laughs> or did I get a conotoxin? <laughs> or did I get snail? a toxic one? <laughs> I may never return. <laughs> but I mean, like how else do you fit neurotoxins Right, right, Romans, right. Fuck the Romans. Yeah. Recipes. <laughs> Napoleon. Okay. <laughs> like this. Is, I'm so happy. I love this. I love and this. culinary. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Um, so I did I mentioned earlier that I was actually writing down a question. Yes. How yes. many people actually die a year from snail stings? So is this it's it's this kind make of it sound like this is like a big deal. Well, so right? it, it it's I'm, a big I'm deal Googling. because okay, so it there have been I forget since when they started counting, but over the past couple decades, 36 people I think have been documented as dying nice. dying from yeah. cone snail poison. Um, there are many more than that that get stung. So, okay. But also if you've ever, you know, stepped on a jellyfish or a sting, you know, gotten a stingray sting. Right. <laughs> um, I think, you know, they're studying the effects of that because those are all sort of in the same neuropeptide, whatever, whatever science I love it, but I can't remember exactly what it, the phrases that I read. Um, right, right. It's all in the same sort of family of uh, nerve receptor inhibitors. And, you know, okay. yeah, it's cool. It, it, it's yeah. cool, but yeah. I know that there were 36 because I was like, just 36? Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's got me baffled. So it's uh, some... Oh, the National Institutes of Health website. Oh, there you go. Says there you go. Thirty-six deaths, fifty-seven cases with serious symptoms but completely recovered, and mm -hmm. forty-four cases of minimally affected. So that yes. must be then. Um, and it, like you said, thirty-six deaths. Um, yeah, and I don't know the time period of this. Let's yeah, click on and the I, link. I'm thinking it's a couple of decades at least when they started tracking this. Um, mm. But also, you know, there are other variables we don't know. Like um, there might be deaths that <clears throat> you know aren't autopsied in other parts of the world because there are no resources or people don't think right. to do it, or you know. Um, and other people who get stung and survive that again, they're, they might be misdiagnosed or they just might like suffer through it <laughs> and recover. Right. Right. 
Yeah. So this, so, uh, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, this article said, or this abstract, uh, says this is more than 30 years covered okay. by this. Um, I'm yeah. sure if so, I scroll I mean, down to the details, it'll tell me That'd be exactly. like 10 people a year if you averaged it out. 12 people a year? No, one, so, 30 years, 36 people, that's one person a year. One point something a year. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know... <laughs> It's, it's okay. It's not. It, it's not your strength. Math is not your strength. <laughs> I kept seeing the three, and that's why I'm yeah. like, oh, <laughs> yeah, no. It's all good. It's all good. We still love you. <laughs> you connected culinary school and <laughs> and fucking world peace. <laughs> I this is why I'm like, what the fuck are they teaching in schools that are turning people off of history? Yeah, this is the stuff that yeah. Yeah, because, exactly. I mean, this is how our reality is. Like everything's fucking connected. Yes. Yeah. And you just have and, to learn how to pull the threads. Right. And and there are newer uh, curriculums that are exploring the teaching of history in a bigger uh, perspective that brings other stuff together. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> like at the high school where the ki my kids were, you know, Lucy graduated from and where, holy crap, Violet starts in the fall. I don't <gasps> know how the hell that happened. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they have come, they've combined English and history classes together mm -hmm. and the, the whole structure of the instruction is more of a classroom discussion. Mm -hmm. Teacher gives a topic and the class breaks it down. Yeah. I mean, that's great that's for developing critical thinking. Exactly. Um, yeah, it, it, and it's one of the options The mm -hmm. you know, you can go with the classic history class, classic English class, um, you can go with the AP classes, mm -hmm. or you can go with this other, and it's called Padea. I don't know if that word, you probably know It probably that word. has it something probably to do with pedagogy. Okay. Pediological, yeah, it, it probably has to do with that. Okay. Like the pedagogy of teaching and, you know, okay. it's the philosophy of teaching. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I honestly, I have a huge collection of books about the history of science. Wow. <laughs> you know, yeah. because it, you know, for people like me, it really helps to anchor ideas to know where they came from. Yes. And how we got there and logic how we yeah. logicked them or how we <laughs> discovered we needed, we didn't know something and we needed to know it. Like, how do you know that right. you don't know something? Exactly. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, I would love to see that happen with math. I think Aww. that would be fabulous if like you could bring together history and math. Hmm. That would be something that would be transformative for so many people. Like, like me, cue, cue the Sarah <laughs> McLaughlin music. <laughs> and I, for my brain, math is just so natural mm -hmm. that it, I don't, I, I, I couldn't even grasp how to put it, to take it into a different context. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, math is so, uh, what's I can't think of the right words that I want to describe In it. Instinctive? Um, it's black and white. It's there. There's no yeah. gray with math. But it's I mean, somebody. Two plus two equals four. But somebody invented calculus at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I used to know who that was. Right. Oh, damn, and damn. Somebody, right, you know. It's, 
it's, it's ah. So Isaac Newton. There you go. There was yeah, a book that I lost in one of my many moves, but I really want it back called The Music of Pythagoras. Mm-hmm. And it's by this woman, Kitty Ferguson, who is a master of taking either astronomy or science or math and smashing it together with history and showing us how it actually all works and comes together. And, you know, she started by taking us through ancient Greek history and what the life of Pythagoras really was and what we know of him, what we don't know of him, what was, you know, guessed. And so when you come down to like the one little thing of his that survives that has you know, been the basis of all of this. You're like, wow, we're really lucky that one particular little sliver of scrap (laughs) of papyrus actually survived all this shit. Right, right, right. You know, and, uh, but she does it in a way so that it, it's more narrative and conversational so that I'm like, oh, okay. I understand. I don't need numbers to understand this. I need words. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh, and the Google search results are suggesting that there are evidence or instances, uh, research, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. that calculus, the theories did exist prior to Isaac Newton and this other guy, Gottfried Leibniz. Um, Yeah. Those are the two names most Mm -hmm. associated with calculus but there is evidence of it before those two even came around um well and the history of zero like okay see yeah you're put you're putting a rabbit hole in front of me that's really hard to back away from yeah i so want to nerd out on that rabbit hole thank the arabs for (laughs) the concept of zero because the concept of zero was super controversial. Wow. Probably see, another I'm deep like, dive. I'm like, how is that controversial? Oh, One it's person controversial has something in their hand, the other person doesn't. But the, pro- the, the other person has of nothing. Nothingness of absolute nothingness of flies in the flew in the face of established religion at the time. We're talking like, you know, around the time of Walperga. It's all connected. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Walperga will be the main coming on the main episode think, coming up. <laughs> I, I actually think this. I think the zero is going to have to be a collaborative one because you're going to have Damn. to take the math side of it. Yeah, yeah. That that'll be I, a while though. I, I yeah. got to recover. From yeah, tax no, we're, we're, we got to get you over to France first. So <laughs> the yeah. I, let me look at the. Because I actually put together a timeline of the <laughs> episodes I'm doing for your French Patreon. Uh, <laughs> yes. So we are going to talk about ancient Paris next week. Oh. Oh, yeah. Très bien. Très bien. Très bien. Okay. Bien. <laughs> Uh, bien. Bien. Not uh. <laughs> the the dude in Duolingo. The dude in Duolingo says bien. Très bien. He's the a bear. Duolingo is a dick. <laughs> He's a bear. <laughs> that explains a lot. That explains a He's fucking a lot. And I am now full of rage, <laughs> which is a good point to end this recording. <laughs> oh my god. Thank you guys for Listening to another crazy deep dive. Merci uh, beaucoup. <laughs> Merci beaucoup. Uh, à bientôt. À la prochaine fois. Um... Ciao. <laughs> Au revoir. Au revoir. Ciao. À bientôt. <laughs>